It's good to be back after a, um, a three-week semi, three semi-working vacation. Um, my uh, staff, unfortunately, told me about a month ago that um, I was uh, 25 years as being a pastor in the ministry, and, uh, and, and I have to tell you, that kind of hit me harder than turning 50, um, kind of went into a little uh, pastoral uh, midlife crisis, so I decided to take three weeks off, let myself go a little bit, and uh, that's what I became. Um, we have the picture, guys? <laughs> Would you have recognized me? And the answer is probably no. Um, I did find my razor again, which is nice. And uh, I mean, literally, I mean, it is somewhat uh, like 25 years. That's, that's just a long time. But also the, the bigger reason was is that uh, my son's going to be going off to, um, to school in about three weeks. Uh, he got accepted to a, a PhD program in uh, California. And uh, I'll be, uh, he'll, I'll be dri help driving him out there mid-September. And that will be the next five years of his life. Um, and, and he won't be coming home anymore. And so I want to get to do a few things with him. So we did a couple of different fishing trips and so forth. And, uh, and what was also nice about taking the time off, though, was that I had some opportunities to visit some uh, other churches, because for most of the time, I, I was in town. Uh, in fact, the first half of it, I was still coming in the office for a few hours every day. Uh, that's why I, was, I said it was a semi-working vacation. Um, but in, in visiting those different churches, it was interesting to see the things that they do, especially the one that I, my first week off, I went to a, a, a really a large church in the area. And what I noticed is that a lot of things that we've been talking about in Jude are, are things that are actually going on in the church today. And I was able to see that firsthand because it's been a long time uh, since I've been able to go and, uh, and visit some other churches on a Sunday morning. Uh, so over the course of the, maybe the next several weeks, I'll be telling you some stories about that. Um, I will be telling you a story about it, uh, one story about it uh, this morning as well. But uh, this morning, we're at our second to last uh, message on our, our Jude message series, and we're going to be taking a look at Jude verses 14 to 16. So I encourage you to go ahead and look up on the screens as we uh, dig into that this morning. And it starts off saying this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied about them and prophesied saying the see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all their defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them these people are grumblers fault finders, and they follow their own evil desires, and they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. Now, some of you are familiar that the book of Jude, when it refers to Enoch here at the beginning, the seventh from Adam, he's actually quoting from a book that's called the book of Enoch. Now, here's what's significant about that is the book of Enoch... Uh, basically purports itself to be written by the Enoch of Genesis chapter 5. Now, the Enoch of Genesis chapter 5 is long before Moses, who writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The, the Enoch of Genesis chapter 5, um, it predates the flood. And who's this Enoch? Well, Scripture says of Enoch that he's just really one of two men that never die. 
Elijah you're familiar with. Uh, he was taken up in the chariot of fire. But Enoch, it says this of Enoch. It says Enoch walked with God and talked with God, and then Enoch was no more. Now, here's what you got to understand. Just like from uh, if something was written before the flood, how in the world would we have it after the flood? And, and the reality is, is uh, the earliest that there's any mention of this book of Enoch comes first century BC. So about one century before Christ, all of a sudden it, it, it's on scene. So it wasn't written by the Enoch of Genesis cha uh, chapter five. But I will tell you this, that in the days of the New Testament, it was looked upon very favorably, um, and, and, uh, and it carried a lot of clout in the New Testament church. And so Jude is referencing a quote from this book of Enoch. But throughout this series, when we've been looking at Jude, what we've been seeing is Jude's talking about dysfunction in the church. Now, all of us grew up in families. We know families have dysfunction. You grew up in a family, and you probably are able to recognize things that were dysfunctional and unhealthy about the family that you grew up in. The reality is, is all of our current present families are probably somewhat dysfunctional too. It's just harder to see the dysfunction when, when you're living in it. Well, what is a church? A church is just like a giant family. And in the same way families can be dysfunctional uh, and are dysfunctional, uh, the church can be highly dysfunctional. I have to tell you, like, I actually grew up in Fort Worth um, from my middle school and high school years. It was in South Fort Worth, and um, we joined this, uh, this church that had been around for a long time, and churches that have been around for a long time, they're made up of members that, um, uh, that, that, that feel like because they started the church, they get special privilege than other people, and it had all those different dynamics going on in it. Well, while we were there, so my uh, middle school and high school years, uh, they called a new pastor, and this new pastor came in, and he was a younger guy. He was, you know, very relatable, very personable. He, he would preach different than, like, the old guard used to preach and so forth, and, and he was liked by a great number of people in the congregation, but he was also disliked by a great number of people in the congregation because he was so different than, than what they were used to. Well, uh, some different things happened, and, and some of which I kn knew about, other things I didn't know about. But while I was away from college, or away to college, they actually had a voters meeting uh, to decide if they were going to keep the pastor, and they ended up kicking the pastor out of the church. And when they kicked the pastor out of the church, uh, the, those that were like in agreement with the pastor and supportive of the pastor basically became the church in exile. And that was my family because we weren't part of that old guard that had been there forever. So when I would come back from college and go to church, all of a sudden we were no longer at that church. Like we were this group uh, that had been kicked out. There's a ton of dysfunction in churches. I'm here to tell you like as soon as late service is over, I'm gonna have to hop in my, uh, my truck I want to say my car, but I'd be lying. I recently got a truck, so I was going to say a vehicle. But so these are the conversations I have in my mind as I'm preaching, like which way do I say it? I'm going to hop in my truck. Um, and, uh, and I have to go to a church in this area because I, I hold this role within our church body in which I kind of oversee the ministry of, of like eight to 10 churches in, in this area. I'm going to be going to a church that is going to be having, and I have already started, and if they let me in, a, a voters meeting um, where like they're going to be discussing some things that there's a group of people that are, are very upset about and, and are almost like threatening a church split over. Um, churches can be highly, highly dysfunctional.
Um, I mentioned that while I was uh, taking the three weeks off, I got the opportunity to visit uh, a few different churches. And uh, last Sunday, uh, this past one, it was a really good experience. Um, went to this church and it just so happened that uh, God had uh, led me there where uh, the pastor was just coming back from a, not a three-week vacation, but a three-month sabbatical. Uh, it was a church in Irving, and the church has a policy that after every um, seven years, certain people on staff, I don't know if it's everyone on staff, just a pastoral staff or what, but they basically get a three-month what they call sabbatical, uh, just a break from ministry, and it's paid. And I know a lot of churches that do that and so forth. And I don't, I don't really know how I feel about sabbaticals. I don't think I really like sabbaticals. I, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've never had a sabbatical. I don't think I want one. I'm not not sure why pastors get sabbaticals because you guys don't get sabbaticals at your job. So um, there's all that that kind of goes into it. But uh, the, the pastor, uh, you know, said something interesting. Once again, it was his first Sunday back. And, and he said that, you know, before he went on the sabbatical, he just, he kind of had this general un, un, uneasiness, this, this, this like feeling of not sure what God wants from him and in what direction that he should be going in and the church should be going in and, and so forth. And, and I really resonated with that because I like lived my life in, in, in that kind of just place. Uh, but, you know, he quoted a Bible passage that I thought was really interesting, and it really spoke into the heart of some of the things that pastors will struggle with. And it's a Bible passage that I bet most of you in here haven't heard, so I want to share it with you this morning. And it comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He said, you know, talking about this kind of general uneasiness that, that, that he had been experiencing before his sabbatical, he says, he reads Hebrews 13, 17, saying, uh, it says this, obey your leaders. Now, when it says leaders, it's talking really about spiritual leaders here, really pastors. Uh, obey your pastors and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And after the pastor read this, he's like, so if you guys would just do me a favor since I'm responsible for your souls, if you guys would just stop sinning, right? That would be helpful. And they laughed as, as you're laughing, but you probably didn't realize this, that, that pastors, like I've got to, you know, I'm responsible for your soul and I'm going to stand before God and have to give an account for your soul. And I just got to tell you, like, I got my own stuff that I got to stand before God on. I mean, if everyone else's and, and, and if that's what ministry is like, you can, you can wonder and understand why every seven years, maybe it's good for a pastor to just get away for maybe three months or so so because that is a huge amount of responsibility that, that, like, as a pastor, I have to give an account not only for myself, but for all of you. And, and that's why, you know, like in parenting, some parents, they just kind of let their kids do whatever. They're, they're not going to discipline them. They're not going to punch them. They just don't want to deal with the drama. They just, they tend to ignore their kids. You know, it's like when, when you go places and the kids are running around and, and, and you know, just making all kinds of, parents just don't discipline. Well, pastors pastor that way. And, and many of these churches, like, it, there, there might be drama going on here and this going on there, and the pastor just doesn't want to get involved with it. But listen, if, if you're a pastor of, of good conscience, you can't do that because in the end, pastors are responsible for the souls of their flock and will ultimately stand before God and give an account. 
and what I really like about that passage is like, listen, it's going to happen, so why don't you make this a joyful experience for the pastor? And then like that church that I'm going to be going to right after I leave here, that's not where that pastor's at. It's not a joyful experience, right? And I have to tell you that for many pastors in many places, that church that I grew up in, uh, that wasn't a, a joyful experience. And Jude talks about why it becomes a, a task or a burden. He says because what gets into the church is this dysfunction that's made up of these people that are grumblers, fault finders, they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. And they'll ultimately flatter others for their own advantage. So for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about those uh, five different types of people that Jude's mentioning. The first that he mentions here is the grumblers. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, uh, some of the, the, the translations don't say grumblers, but it's more like the mumblers or the murmurers. And I actually like that translation a little bit better because people who grumble oftentimes do it under their breath. All of us in here have walked into a room before. We've all had this happen. You walk into a room, there's a couple people talking, and when they see you walk in, all of a sudden they get quiet. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, that happens all the time right? Because they're just kind of maybe talking about you or something that they think you might be in favor of it, and they're just trying to grumble and mumble to themselves, and they don't want you to hear. Have you ever known someone who's a grumbler? I'm here to tell you people that are grumblers are not joys to be, be around because nothing is ever good enough to someone who's a, a, a grumbler, you don't want to walk up to a grumbler and, man, I just love you and you're grumbling. You want to give him a kick in the pants, if we're going to be honest. And when I think of grumblers, here's who I think of is uh, the Israelites, especially as they were brought out of Egypt because they constantly grumbled before God and they grumbled before Moses. See, when we think about that story about when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he, he brought them out of like slavery. There were these taskmasters that were working them to death. God delivered them from that slavery, but you know what? It wasn't good enough because when they got out in the desert, what do they do? They start grumbling against God and they start grumbling against Moses. God, God wanted to remove his presence from them, but, but he chose not to because Moses begged and argued on the people's behalf. So God's presence constantly went before the people. He was a, a cloud by day. He was a pillar of fire by night. And then when they settled over an area, there was this tent uh, and a tabernacle and, and like this misty, cloudy substance would descend into it. And when they were to pack up and move, that, that, that misty, cloudy substance would go out and it, it would go before them. But even though God's presence was amongst them, you know what they did? They just grumbled. They grumbled against God and they grumbled against Moses. You know, God gave them daily food. You can imagine what it'd be like, you know, a large group of people out in the desert and, and not having food to, to buy from the, from the area market or whatever, and, and they would grumble against God. And so what God did is every single day that, that, that they were out there in the desert, except the Sabbath, but that gets complicates the story. So let's just say every single day, there would be this like, Forming on this ground, this, this like 
wafery bread-like substance, not much different than what you tasted in communion today. And it would be enough for them to, to get all of their nutrition. Now, mind you, it probably didn't taste the best, you know, but, but, but even though God performed this miracle every day, their response is they would just grumble against God. You know, that I, I want meat. So God would, you know, allow birds to fall from the sky every so often. And, and that still wasn't good enough. They still grumbled. They grumbled because they want water and they would be thirsty. And so when water wasn't even available, God would provide this miraculous means in which water would gush forth out of a rock or out of the desert, and, and, and yet they still grumbled. And they didn't grumble to Moses. They didn't grumble to God like, God, listen, I'm just really struggling with the taste of you know, wafers for 40 years. God, God I, mean, this, I mean, if you just please, God, I mean, I, I appreciate. It wasn't like that kind of thing. Uh, it, 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 it was like one of my biggest frustrations is when people grumble, like they're just complaining. Listen, what good is it to just complain? If you're going to complain, have a solution. If you don't have a solution, then don't complain. And, and so they're not going to God with it. They're not going to Moses with it. What they want to do is they want to kill Moses and they want to go back into slavery in Egypt. And it did not work out real well for them to be grumblers and they were punished for it. Why do people grumble? People grumble because honestly, like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. When you go to a restaurant and, and like the service isn't like really good or the food's a long time in coming or the food comes, it doesn't meet your expectation. It starts with a grumble or a mumble or a murmur. People are kind of talking around the table and I can't believe this. I've been here. And, and then it goes like, hey, I, 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 you know, the waiter or waitress comes by. I want to speak to the manager and the manager comes and you expect that you're going to get comp for the meal or get some free appetizer or something because you're grumbling and you will. Why? The squeaky wheel gets the grease and, and the grumblers get what they grumble about. Kids grumble against their parents. Why? To kind of wear them down and get what they want. People will grumble in the church. I'm going right again after the service is over. I'm going to the church because there's a bunch of grumblers there because they don't like the direction the church is going in and, and they're going to grumble until they get their way. God does not appreciate grumbling. And Jude talks about it as a dysfunction that can be found in the body of Christ. Then the next thing Jude mentions is fault finders. I almost wish fault finders was first because if you're a fault finder, you're going to become a grumbler probably. But grumblers are mentioned first. Fault finders are mentioned second. Uh, fault finders, they have a negativity problem. Fault finders are people that are always negative. They're never happy. But you know what? For a fault finder, it's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. When, when you think about people who are fault finders, like politicians are huge fault finders. Politicians will always say, this is the problem and it's their fault, their fault, their fault. I've never heard a politician say, this is a problem. And you know what? I bear responsibility of this, people. Have you ever heard that? No, that would be like the second coming of Christ. If you've ever played athletics, there's going to be a fault finder on the team. Might be the star player, might not be. But this is a person that, like, you know, every goal that's scored or every touchdown that's scored, whatever sport you're playing, you know, it's always this person didn't do their job. That, they don't ever see their own responsibility in it. 
Fault finders can be found in families that uh, maybe it's a critical parent or a critical spouse in which, you know, it, it's, it's always someone else's fault for the problem. You know, dinner's never good enough or, or you know, that the house is never cleaned right or whatever it is, like there's always a complaint. And Jesus addresses fault finders in his word. Look at Matthew chapter 7, 3 to 5. Jesus says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? All the while that you pay no attention to the plank, the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, you know what? You, you, you need to fix that about yourself. You, you, you need to remove that, that speck out of your eye when you got the big honk and plank in your own. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. And once that plank's gone, then okay, you'll be able to see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Fault finders are extremely dangerous in the body of Christ, specifically in the church. Why? Because negativity is so contagious. Have you ever been around a really negative person? It's, it's easy to like start having some of those same negative attitudes. The other problem with fault finders is they're partially right. Guess what? No one's perfect. No one does everything always right, says something always exactly right. And so when a fault finder is going to pick apart the imperfectness of a situation, frankly, they're partly right. But what it comes down to is like, we have a choice. How are you going to see the glass? Is the glass half full or is it half empty? Because you have the choice to see it whichever way you want. A, a fault finder is always going to say, well, you know, it, it, it's, only, it's only half full. You know, almost everything can be seen this way. And that's what becomes contagious, especially in a church is, you know, maybe we'll pick apart things like, especially if you come during early service, like a little cold in here sometimes. I mean, I'm sweating, but like people are like, ah, oh, that church is always cold. Oh, that pastor always preaches 40 minutes. You get 45 today. I've been gone for a while. There's always these things that we can find fault in and that we can complain about, and then, then it becomes contagious. We, we saw this actually play out in, in the national media this past week. If you're a fan of movies or of sports, you, you heard the whole, like, Michael Orr drama, which was from that movie The Blind Side, if you saw it. And like, when, when you look at it from like a fault finding, like you can see it from both sides. You can look at it from Michael Orr's side who has his feelings hurt that like he was supposed to have been adopted, but he was never officially adopted. It was just like a, a legal conservatorship. And, and, and then like, he didn't like that they made this movie about him and that he didn't get the royalties. But the other's like, yeah, you did get the royalties, but the family only got like 125,000. Uh, and the Tui family said, daddy too, he got 25. Mama too, he got 25. Uh, young kid too, he got 25. Sister too, he got 25. And yeah, Michael Orr, you got the 25,000. And, and, and they're sitting there and thinking, like, how ungrateful are you anyways? Because, you know, and, and once again, it's just, a, it's just a movie, but and I'm going off based off the movie, but, you, you know, you didn't even have a roof over your head. You didn't have a mom that was taking care of you. Uh, in the movie, he didn't know even how to play football. Apparently, he says he did. He was good at football. But he would never have gotten, graduated from high school, let alone gotten into college, let alone been drafted into the NFL if it wasn't for this family. So which side is it? Is it Michael who kind of feels like he was taken advantage of or is it the family that kind of feels like he's ungrateful? Well, it's both. 
if you're a fault finder. Well, we gotta be careful in how we look at things and how we judge things. Because I shared with you that Bible passage where Jesus is saying, listen, before you're worried about that speck in your friend's eyes, your brother's eyes, your sister's what co-worker's eyes, you know, get that plank out of your own. The, the immediately two verses before that, he says this. He says, judge not so that you would not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you yourself will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So if you're an overly critical, judgmental, fault-finding individual, you better watch out because what Jesus says is in the same way that you, you, you look at others, you're, that's how I'm going to judge you. And I don't care how great of a person you are or how good of a Christian you are, God is going to be able to find fault in you. So we're called in the body of Christ to look at one another with grace and not to pick apart like minuscule failings and, and imperfections, we all have them. Jude goes on and talks about those who follow their own evil desires. He says, you can recognize the dysfunction in church by, by those who are following their own evil desires. Here's the deal. is like, in general, we as people are, we, we like following our own evil desires. But what Jesus calls for us to do is like, not like live our lives doing what we want to do, when we want to do, sprinkling a little God on us while we're doing it and thinking it's all, all right. Jesus says that we've got to learn to deny ourselves and, and follow him first. Look at Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to be, you know, a part of me, first, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would want to save his life has to be willing to lose it. And for whoever will lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a person if he gains the whole world? yet forfeits his soul. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Before we can follow Christ, we have to learn to deny ourselves. And here's the problem. We're not good at denying ourselves. Look at your bank account. Some of us are living paycheck to paycheck because we're not good at denying ourselves. We're buying all this stuff. Look at yourself naked in the mirror and you can see like we're not great at denying ourselves. When I pull up to the, the, my favorite fast food station, Waterburger, McDonald's, whatever it is, the words that I hope I won't hear is, do you want to supersize this? Because my answer is, yeah, I want to supersize it. In fact, I want you to fill up that whole bag with French fries because who can have too many French fries? Right? I need more than three weeks off. <laughs> it's just, I mean, our vehicles, we don't really deny ourselves. Our houses, we don't really deny ourselves. The stuff that we have in our houses, we don't deny ourselves. We're just this immediate gratification society. If you remember the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory uh, movies, I can't remember if this exact, I think that all the characters were, were the same, but specifically I remember in the first one, uh, there was um, the character called uh, Veruca Salt. And she was the one that wanted everything. 
I can't remember if her dad was the rich one or the car salesman. I just remember like, she's like, daddy, I want this and I want that. And then, and I want it and I want it now. That's how we all tend to be. But Jesus calls for us to deny ourselves. practice self-discipline and then we're able to follow him and I'm here to tell you that's not a message you hear at church in these days that first church that I went to and it's going to remain nameless because I don't I don't gain anything by offending you if you used to go there you have family members that go there but if you do want to listen to my podcast two or three weeks ago I did mention it so you can hear it there but I'm not going to do it in the sermon up here but they, they don't talk about denying oneself. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about there being a right or a wrong. They just simply embrace culture and they sprinkle a little God on it. They don't talk about immorality. They don't talk about selfishness. They don't talk about any of that stuff. Two things, two last things that Jude warns us about in the church. And the next is this those that boast about themselves. Now, that church that I went to the first week, I mean, it was all about boasting about themselves. You know, individuals will boast about themselves, but churches will as well. And this church I went to the first week, there was all these, like, throughout the service, there was, like, you know, between worship and, and the sermon, and even, I think, before worship, there's all these infomercials uh, promoting the, the blank, you know, blank church family. And and it was just self-promotion. It'd be like you walking around with promoting yourself. And when it got to the sermon time, it was just all self-promotion too. I literally, like the, the main pastor was not preaching. It was the campus pastor. But, but the sermon, this is the summation of the sermon is, you know what? In about three weeks, we're going to be opening up our expanded facility. Uh, we've uh, added 900 seats and, and uh, the cost was $20 million. But praise God for the blank family because you guys raised all 20 million. But you know what? It's not just enough to, to, to have the expanded facility. We have to furnish it. So there's another 2 million for those 900 seats, which, man, those seats are expensive, but that's another side thing. But okay, we're only up to about 400 and some thousand of that 200 or, or that 2 million. And, and, and the whole, thing, like there wasn't, uh, there wasn't really a mention of God at all. It was all about them and how great they are and how they started as this. And then they become that. They need to be in inviting their friends because the blank family is just so great. It's just self-promotion. This is why, like, every so often, like, some people on my staff, they're like, you know what, Pastor Greg, people want, like, some Light of the World shirts. They want some Light of the World hats. They want some Light of the World this, this, that. And I used to just say no. Now it's like, uh, whatever, but you can't, like, advertise it. All right, we can have it out there, but you can only tell people when they ask. Why? Because I'm not here to promote Light of the World Church. I'm not here to promote Greg Butel. Like, I'm here to promote Jesus Christ because it's, it's his name that should be elevated. But in so many churches today, especially in, in like, the larger churches, it's just about basically their corporate identity. You know, what's, um, what's interesting is Jesus' first disciples were fishermen. And if you're going to talk about braggers, fishermen are the worst. I, I spent 10 days of my 
three-week working vacation, 10 days of it was fishing. And uh, a guy came along that, you know, I do a lot of my fishing with. And, and I know this guy for a fact, like his fish get bigger like daily. Like the first day you're fishing, it may have been like a, a 13-inch largemouth, but by the end of the week, that, that sucker was like 20 inches. And, and like, that's just what fishermen do to the point that like, I'm like, if you don't take a picture of the fish, as far as I'm concerned, you didn't catch it. In fact, I'm out there kayaking in my kayak. I've got my iPhone there with me, knowing that if I catch a big one, I'm probably going to overreact and turn that thing over, and my phone's going to end up at the bottom of, of the swamp that we're fishing in. But I don't care, because like, we're going to have to prove these fish, because I don't trust you, right? That's fishermen. But when it comes to people bragging, they're not bragging about the size of their fish, but what they're bragging about is, you know, in my family, if I wasn't around, the whole thing would just fall apart. They're, they're bragging about their importance. You know what, in my job, like if, 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 if I'm gone, uh, you know, th that place is gonna fall apart. I do the work of five different people. Uh, people will brag about their intelligence. Why, like I've never met someone as smart as me. Uh, people brag about their net worth. They, you know, they, they just elevate themselves themselves. Here's the problem with a bragger. If you don't understand reality between you and your family, you and your work, you and your friends, you and you know, whoever, you don't understand reality between you and your relationship with God. And if you overestimate your importance to everyone in this life, I guarantee you're overestimating your importance to God. Now, let me say, yeah, I get it. All of us are important to God, but you're not important to God because you impress him. You're just important to God that he chooses to love you. And you see, there's a difference and you deserve it and he chooses to love you. But for someone that's a bragger, they tend to think, you know what, God really needs me. Not to burst anyone's bubble, but he actually doesn't. That's why we hear in James chapter four, verse six, but he will give us more grace. And that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but in fact, he will show his favor to those who are humble. And then the last one that I want to talk about uh, this morning is um, people that will flatter for their own advantage. You know, I, I'm always suspicious of flatterers. And we like flatterers in our lives because we like to be made feel good about ourselves. But, you know, there's those people that would be like, uh, you know, every time they see you, wow, you look great. Or, man, I tell you what, you're so smart, you're so quick on your toes, I, I don't know how you think that quickly, I could never. You know, those are the people we love to have around us at work, right? You know, the people that will tell us how talented we are. Do you know who some of the best flatterers are that we have in our lives? It's our kids. And they do to manipulate us, to schmooze us, to get what they want from us. They want to spend the night with friends all of a sudden, like they're just throwing all kinds of compliments at you. And like, what happened to you? Why aren't you like this more often? Well, I was kind of hoping I could like spend the night at Johnny's house. Ground your kid for six weeks and watch what a flatterer they can become. Why? Because it works. You know who's closely, closely aligned to the flatterers? It's those people who would tell you what you want to hear. When I was in seminary, the church that I worked at for a couple years doing children's ministry, there was, this was in Missouri, there was the principal was a good old boy from Texas. And this good old boy from Texas, the principal of the school, you'd have a conversation with him and he would 
always tell you exactly what you want to hear. You never have to have an argument with them. Whatever you said, they agreed with and whatever. And then like you're hearing them talk to someone else and they're like agreeing to something totally opposite. And the problem is, is with people that will tell you what you want to hear, you don't know what reality is and you don't know what truth is. It's like someone going to the doctor and saying, hey, doc, I, I understand I've got lung cancer, but I, I'm kind of like enjoy smoking my cigarettes. Do you, do you think smoking these three packs of cigarettes a day will affect the lung cancer? And the doctor say, nah, it shouldn't bother you at all. Go ahead and do it. It's just telling you what you want to hear. Or the judge or your attorney, like maybe you got into some legal problems and they're trying to get you to settle the case. So they're trying to get you to plead to this or that. And so you just ask them, you know, so, so will this affect my ability to get a job in the future? Oh, no, it won't. You sign it and then all of a sudden like it does, right? But, but, but at the time, they just tell you what you want to hear. It's, it's like if you can't afford prescription medicine, maybe you don't have health insurance, but maybe there's some street drugs that are out there that, that can help with the pain or the different things you're suffering with. And you're asking the drug dealer, like, is there any chance? I could get really sick by this or addicted to it. No, I won't hurt you at all. Or like between husband and wife, and frankly, wives, these, this is, I'm talking about you. When you look at your husband and say, do you like this outfit? There is no permission to say no to that. Or if you say, does this make me look heavy? Your, like, your husband will be stupid to say yes. Those aren't like, they, you just want to hear what it is you want to hear. It's like the pe people that come up, hey, pastor, my friend's thinking about getting an abortion. Is it wrong? Or my friend got an abortion. Is it wrong? Hey, pastor, I just found out my son's gay. Like, is that a problem? Hey, pastor, I, I, I'm just sick of this family thing. I think about running off on my family. Is, is, is that a problem? Hey, hey pastor, like, I've, I've got a friend that committed suicide. Is, is that a problem? And the pastor says, no, it's not a big deal. God loves everyone. And there you have the church today. And that's how those questions would be answered in all of the, not all, but in many, many, many of the larger churches today including that first one that I visited on the first week of my vacation. They'll just tell you what you want to hear. But what good is it if it's just what you want to hear? That's deadly to society because we don't know what reality is, but it's deadly spiritually because it's not the truth of what God's word says, but scripture says this, that in the final days, that's all people are gonna care about. And I'm here to tell you that we're in the final days and all people care about is surrounding themselves in this, this, like, this loop of, uh, of self-affirmation where people are gonna tell them what it is they wanna hear. I've read this to you a hundred times before, but I read it to you again, 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come. It's here now where people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they're gonna gather around them a great number of teachers who will simply tell them what they want to hear. And that's why that church that I went to the first week I had off has become as big as it has, one of the reasons why. Because they just tell people what they wanna hear. I understand that in addition to being 40 or 45 minutes long, my sermons are not always flattering. And I understand this one is not as well. But I hope you understand why. It's because I have to give an account for your soul. 
I'm responsible for your soul. And I have to stand before God and give account for it. It'd be a lot easier to just tell you what you want to hear. But what God calls for us to do is to tell you what his word really says. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious almighty God, we just thank you for this morning. I thank you for all the people who've come here to hear your word this morning. And I just pray for all of us that are in here, gracious God, that um, we would be willing to uh, surrender our own wants and our own wills and our own desires to follow you and your will. God, you know that that's not always easy to do. In fact, rarely is it easy to do. But if we are to truly follow you, we must first deny ourselves. I just pray, gracious God, that as we seek to do that, uh, that you'd bless us, um, that you'd bless our church, and that you would protect it from those uh, divisive things that so oftentimes um, can interfere with the family of God in so many different places. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.